Welcome to the Timeout Bulls podcast, driven by Lexus. Visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the full lineup of all-wheel drive vehicles. Our guest today on Timeout Bulls has never played in the NBA, never coached in the NBA, never broadcast in the NBA, and you're probably saying, what has he done? He's an NBA official from Chicago. James Capers Jr., one of the best officials in the NBA. And our conversation is about how does one become an official in the NBA? What are the challenges of being an NBA official? So let's go to our interview with James Capers, True Class Act on Timeout Bulls. So James, where did this all begin as far as officiating your love for officials? It's been part of my whole life. Uh, My father refereed in the NBA for 24 years, so as a kid, I grew up understanding the profession. He took me to preseason games, regular season games, playoff games, all-star games. So it was just been a fabric of my life. And then uh, one day my father said, hey, why don't you give it a shot? He said, you played your whole life. You've been around it your whole life. Why don't you see if you like it? And that's how I started refereeing. And that was in Chicago? It was in Chicago, and I started refereeing uh, elementary school basketball here in the city, and then I got into the public league, which was kind of the springboard to let me know I really wanted to do it. So what age are we talking about? I was uh, about 26 when I started refereeing. 26. Let's get back to your father for a moment, then we'll talk about you. Uh, Your dad, very accomplished NBA official. In fact, when I was doing public address for the Bulls for three years in the early 80s, uh, that's where I first got to know your father. And... uh, Again, just a tremendous professional class act. I see him now when we go into the New York, New Jersey area because he oversees you know, young officials and reports back to the legal office. What impact and mentorship did he have on you as far as just officiating and did he, did he take games home with him and did he talk about it with you? Well, it's kind of two parts to that answer. First, I just always wanted to be like my father. So it was more of a father-son relationship than a father-son basketball relationship. So you didn't look at him as, my dad is an official. No, I just always wanted to be with him. My father played, so I wanted to play. My father went to Northern Illinois, I went to Northern Illinois. I just, I always wanted to follow in his footsteps. My father graduated from Northern, he was a salesman. I graduated from Northern, I was a salesman. (laughs) And I've just always wanted to be like him. But as it relates to basketball, he shared it with me, and we go so far back, they used to send the reel-to-reel films to the house, and I would sit up and watch him. That was the early days of critiquing, and he would ask me about certain things, and I think that probably was what set the light bulb off. I didn't even realize I wanted to go that route, but because he included me in it, it just turned out to uh, be the number one key to our relationship today. And he officiated how long? 24 years. And you're on your what year? I'm starting my 22nd year. 22nd. Yeah. So just a few years, you'll be matching him and probably surpassing him. It's hard to believe. I hope so. <laughs> well, James, so so your dad uses Chicago as a base. Do you remember the first time you went to Chicago Stadium and saw your dad officiate an NBA game? I don't remember the game, but I remember going because uh, – Back in those days, there wasn't a lot of people at the game. So, no. they, <laughs> so they let me sit right up on the front row and uh, to see some pros playing that young. Because I was nine when my father got hired in the NBA. That was the most amazing thing to me. And, uh, and the NBA wasn't like it is now. So I was proud of my father. 
but like now you get an NBA and everybody's proud and everybody takes a part of it because the NBA is so big. But uh, I was proud of them then. And I, I mean, I'll never forget that. And I even remember before that, they used to do the summer training at the team's summer camps. That's when they had like 20 rounds of the draft. Mm-hmm. And you would go to the camps. And my father went to Milwaukee and he had tried out for a couple years and didn't make it in the NBA. And he took me because he said, I don't know if this will ever happen again. And I remember going to Milwaukee and like Lou Alcindor was in there in the summer working out with people. I mean, he was Kareem then, but it was just amazing. And uh, my father always used to say that the reason he got hired is because he took me that last year and I was his good luck charm. So it's just, it's just been who yeah. we've been. Well, that was a, a golden period. And I use that because these officials were household names. I mean, you had Daryl Gerritsen, you had Earl Strong, yeah. you had um, uh, Jake, um, Jake O'Donnell. Jake O'Donnell, yeah. thank you. And so, I mean, and, and they were larger than life. And your father comes around. And in those days, from an African-American standpoint, you had your father, you had Lee Jones. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of other African-Americans that went through the NBA officiating program at the time. They were, they were two prior to my father, a uh, gentleman named, I want to say his name was Bill White, I think, and then Ken Hudson. Ken. And they both did like a season or two in the NBA. But then Lee got hired and my father got hired the following year, and they were the fir- first two African-Americans to have 20-plus-year careers. And then following them was Hugh Evans and Hugh Hollins. Hollins. And, and, and they, they, were the, they were the forebearers of yeah, the opportunity that's great. happening it really for is. African-American referees. And uh, to your earlier point, I remember sitting at lunch tables with uh, Mindy Rudolph. Mindy Rudolph, another one. Joe Gashu. Joe Gashu. And all those guys. And... and and my, I mean, my father included all that with me. And obviously, again, the NBA wasn't as big then, but it was big to me. Yes. So here you are, James. You go to Northern Illinois. Did you play ball there? Or at what point did, did you realize, you know what? I'm not going to be able to, to take my athleticism to the next level. So you got involved with officiating. Right. I, you know, for me, I knew in high school because I played against – Isaiah Thomas, Terry Cummins, Teddy Grubbs, Mark McGuire, wow. Eddie Johnson. That was a great period. And it was Craig Hodges, Rod Higgins. I mean, it, it was so many guys. Daryl Walker that played in that era, Doc Rivers, that I was able to play with them, but I could tell there was a huge difference between my ability and their ability. So when I went to Northern, I was always refereeing uh, – intramural games on the side. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had a whistle and I had a shirt. So I was just doing it for fun. So you're going to class in DeKalb, and by the way, I got an hour and a half, so I'm going to go out and officiate a game. Exactly. And, and, and it was basketball. You didn't have any desire. Maybe the NFL or wanted to be an umpire. This never, was basketball. Never. My brother actually played baseball, and he wanted to be an umpire. So he, after getting out of college, did do some umpiring. But for me, it was always basketball. I joined – uh, the Metropolitan Officials Association, which is the association here in Chicago that, is, that assigns a lot of the public league games, and they always wanted me to do football. Come on, do football. I just had no interest for it. I just always wanted to do basketball. Wow. What, what was your first big break, either at the collegiate level or the NBA level? Um, my first big break was I was refereeing uh, pro-am basketball, and they used to have a pro-am national tournament every year where they would send NBA scouts to watch them referee. And uh, gentleman Aaron Wade 
discovered me there, and he was Daryl Garrison's right-hand man. And he saw me there, and he came up to me and said, you have a lot of ability, but uh, there's some things you need to work on. And if you come back next year in better shape and with a better game, I'm sure we'll put you in the program. So I worked hard that, that year, and I went the second year to the Pro-Am Nationals, and then they put me in their NBA referee development program where I went back in those days to uh, Loyola Marymount. That's where they played the summer league. Yes, they did. And uh, I worked there, and they put me in the CBA because that was the D League of the time. So when someone says you got to get in shape or you got to work on your game specifically, what what did you have to to work on? Well, my number one thing then was my weight because there are weight requirements in the NBA that we have to meet. And then it was just a maturing process when he was talking about getting better with my game, like understanding the relationship between how you manage coaches, how you manage players, mm -hmm. your feel for the game as to when you should rotate, when you shouldn't rotate, and th those kind of things, which any young referee, that would probably apply to everyone. Uh, James Capers is our guest. Uh, James from Chicago, of course. Uh, over 20 years of experience, he's been kind enough to join us here on Time Out Bulls, our weekly Bulls podcast on Bulls.com and our social media network. So, James, your, your first NBA game. Do you remember it? And do you remember getting the call saying, welcome to the fraternity? I definitely remember it. Um, <laughs> in the years that I got hired, prior to getting hired, guys would go to veterans camp like two or three times. I had never been invited to veterans camp. And I got hired the year that uh, Toronto and Vancouver came in the league. Yeah, they hired 95, 96. 95, yep. Yep. And because they they hired five referees, which was a lot, because they, they would either hire one or none every year. And they hired that because of the amount of teams they brought in. And I never had been invited to veterans camp, and it was the year of the lockout. So the refs weren't at camp. So they brought in replacement refs, but they didn't bring in the five people that they were going to hire. It was me, Benny Adams, Leroy Richardson, Kevin Fair, and Scott Wall. And when the regular season got about two weeks in, they said, well, now we're going to start using these guys. We can't keep them out, and we need them for these games. And I went to work a game in Utah. It was Utah and Houston. And that afternoon at 4 o'clock, Rod Thorne called me and said, we need you to come to New Jersey tomorrow because the lockout is going to end tonight after the games. And I said, I'll go to the airport right now. He said, <laughs> he said, no, we need you to go do this game. Do this game and, and it, then. And the union has yes. approved it. Oh. So I went uh, to New Jersey. We had like a two-day cram course of camp. And then maybe three, two days after that, I was working in Detroit. It was Washington at Detroit. That's your first NBA first, game. I, had, I mean, was your heart pounding? And you had yeah, a, a yeah. lot of things going. You're thinking probably about your dad and all those those uh, intramural games you were calling in DeKalb, Illinois, and uh, just to get to that point where so many people want that, just give me an opportunity, give me yep. a break, and here you are, Detroit and Washington. And what I remember most about it is I worked with Hugh Evans and Bernie Fryer, and because I had never worked a preseason game prior to that, I was wondering would the players believe me when I blew the whistle. So in my mind, I kept saying, if they challenge me, if they challenge me, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call a technical foul <laughs> to make sure that these guys know that I belong here. <laughs> and I'll never give about two or three minutes into the game. I have my first play where I have a foul, and I call a foul, 
and all the players just start walking to the lane. And I don't know, something came over me to say, oh, you can okay. do this. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you still have the uh, box score sheet of that I game? I, I have, I've collected certain ones. I have that one. I have it from all-star appearances. I have my first finals. Um, and that might be it. Yeah. Yeah. Just well, a that's, couple that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Let's talk about a little about relationships, as you mentioned, with players and coaches. The respect has to be earned. I mean, that that's something I think you can say for all levels of all endeavors in, in the business world. But especially with an official, I mean, is there a fine line between, okay, you know what, I need to have a rapport, but I also have a job to do? Exactly. Um, the one good thing about the NBA is that everyone is so professional. The coaches, the players, and the referees. And it's such a small, small fraternity that everyone kind of gets to know one another's name, especially the coaches and the refs. The players, it's a little different because you, they're, they're, their time here is so short. But over the course of the years, you develop just a personal, professional relationship with the coaches. And there's an understanding that we have a job to do, and we understand they have a job to do. So there are going to be some heat-of-the-moment exchanges that I have to understand. This, this coach is trying to keep his job. He's trying to motivate his players. And then he has to understand that sometimes I can't respond because I have to have my attention on the court. But the league has done a real good job over the last few years. We have a coach-referee summit where they invite 10 referees every year, and all the coaches are there. And you get some time away from the game to like get to know a guy and they get to know you and you ask them questions about what do you think refs need to improve upon? And they'll ask us questions about rules or philosophies of the game. And I think that in the NBA, what you see is a growing respect for both professions. Thanks for tuning in to the Timeout Bulls podcast driven by Lexus. The Bulls aren't the only ones with a long season. We all know the Chicago winter can be long and challenging as well. But with 22 all-wheel drive models by Lexus, you don't have to be stuck inside. Visit your Chicago area and Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive today. Lexus all-wheel drive, your antidote for cabin fever. You know, James, you, you mentioned the game itself. And, you know, players, some play 35 minutes, 37 minutes, some play 23 if they're a role player, whatever. An official has to go 48 minutes. What kind of shape are you in? I mean, how do you maintain that for, you know, the whole season? Because you end up officiating how many games, do you think? I will do between uh, 66 and 70 regular season games and then between – uh, 10 to 15 playoff games, including the finals. Wow. So how do you stay in shape? What do you do? My off-season workout is, is really where I kind of balance my fitness. I work out with a trainer, uh, and we probably go four days a week in the off-season. I'm a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday kind of guy with workouts. Uh, one of the challenges in my career has been maintaining my weight as I get older because one of the challenges I have is proper nutrition while I'm on the road during the season. So, in other words, you got to watch what you eat exactly. because, I mean, you're flying all the way. I mean, it's crazy. Exactly. You don't have a charter flight like we do. I wish we did. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's, so that's been my challenge. And we have three weight checks a season. So now I've developed a discipline of on the road, on off days, make sure I get a workout in, and on the game days, kind of rest and recover to be prepared for the games. 
The, the game is, is beautiful. I love the NBA. It's fast. It's exciting. They play above the rim. It's physical. And the players are getting big, but the, the court dimensions have stayed the same. Yeah. Is, is, it a tough, is it a tough sport to officiate because of some of the elements we just talked about? It is a tough sport to officiate, but the hardest thing is just the speed and the height of the game. There is nothing that can prepare you for an NBA game as a referee, and you have to learn being out here with these guys. That's why the, the maturation process of a young official takes so long because he can't go like a player in offseason and work on his shot. He can go referee some games, but he'll never see anything like this. And the NBA athlete is just a phenomenal player. And the things they can do, uh, once you think you have them pegged, they come with a new move. So now we find ourselves catching up to them instead of meeting them right at that cross. So it takes us a little while to get up to speed. And a lot, one play that everyone always talks about is traveling. Yes. But if you look at a lot of plays, like with the Euro step, these guys are becoming so good at it that it may look bad, yes. but if you really watch the play, it is a legal play. Yes, it is. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for officials, James, and I've told you this many times. It is a tough, tough sport. What's a charge? What's a block? The Euro step. I mean, how do you control the emotions of a player? I mean, officials are human beings. You're going to make mistakes. I get that. And when an official understands you know what, I'm not sure about that one. Does it, the, whether it's you or any other official, do you give that player or that coach some space to vent and then you move on? We do. We do have a philosophy of heat of the moment. When we know it was a very tough, tough play. Call. Or every now and then you'll make a call and you're like, mm, I didn't really like that call. Yep. And you do allow a player to vent. Plus there are pressures in the game and times in the game their excitement level is a little higher. And you try and take all that into account. But in the end, it's a respect level. If they do things in a respectful way, or they have a heat of the moment reaction, and it immediately dissolves, then we give them that leeway. But when it becomes disrespectful, and you know they're showing you up, then I think that one good thing we have is a technical foul. And when people understand that the technical foul is not a weapon, but just a means to manage and control the discipline on the floor. I think that the you know players and coaches respect that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because you know we talk about coaches. They have to make a lot of decisions during the course of a game, and sometimes those decisions work. Sometimes they don't. Players miss shots. Um, you know, broadcasters. Believe it or not, James, I know this is hard to believe. We do make mistakes. So do you ever, when, do you ever like, on your off night, do you watch an NBA game or do you get away from it? Or when you watch a game, can you enjoy it as a fan of the sport? Or are you critiquing officials? Are you looking at the, the players or the coach? Or can you compartmentalize things? Uh, first of all, when I watch an NBA game, I can never watch it as a fan. I am Does that bother you that you've lost that innocence, so to speak, as a, as a young kid in Chicago where you would go and just watch a game and this yeah. is fun? No, but what I do when I just want to enjoy basketball, I go to a public league game. I go to a high school game, and I love watching the kids play. 
and that's where I get my enjoyment. I still know a lot of the coaches because I'm involved in a lot of things. We're trying to help referee, young referees in the area. So I love going to watch high school games just for the fun of the game. But when I watch an NBA game, I'm either watching teams I have coming up on a road trip to just see what they're doing, style of play, who's playing major minutes, who are they going to in key moments. Or I'm just watching my colleagues because I can get better watching a first-year referee just like I could get better watching Joey Crawford, mm-hmm. how they manage a the situation, uh, maybe a challenge in play or point of emphasis that I know that I need to work on, and I, I see their positioning as to how they get those type of plays. But this is what I do for a living, and I am consumed with trying to be successful at it. So to watch it as a fan is pretty tough for me. Um, the, the, when you have to make a bang-bang play – and again, you have no home court. You have no road court. You're an official. So you do you do you hear the crowd? I mean, do you have ears that just kind of like just box everything out, or how does that affect you? I, I realize what a fan is because I'm a Cub fan. I'm a Bear fan, so I know what it is to be a fan. Yeah. But I know that ninety percent of a fan's reaction is that. Raw emotion. Exactly, that they have for their team. Yeah. So I don't really get let that bother me because a tough play, they're going to react. The one thing that does always enter my mind is like when they're shooting a free throw and because everything is shown on the video screen and you hear this loud, oh. (laughs) And I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder that I missed that one. But one thing about not only me but all the referees in the NBA, we're trying to be perfect although we know we can't. Sure. And while the game is being played, we're taping it in the locker room. We go in at halftime. We know decisions that we want to look at, and we will go huddle around the television in there and rewatch tough plays. And if we did make a mistake, one thing we don't have a problem doing is going to that coach or player and saying, hey, I looked at that play. I missed it. So you'll, you'll do that before the third quarter. Somewhere in the game, if there's a stoppage and you just are next to a player saying, you know what, my bad. Yeah, remember to play in the first okay. quarter. I think a player and a coach will respect that. Yeah, and, and, and then at the end of the game, we do the same thing for the second half as far as trying to get better, trying to get every play right, looking at tough decisions. How could we have done things better? And, you know, without – blowing our own horn a lot of times we look at it and we're right absolutely but absolutely but those that we're wrong we are constantly trying to see how we can improve upon that so that it doesn't happen in our next game all right these are before i let you go these are some common questions that i'm often asked uh if if we can ask an official so we're going to just put it out there how many games a month do you do i do between 12 to 14 games a month okay the day of a game what do you eat how do you prepare for a game the day of a game for me and the majority of my colleagues, uh, usually get up around 9, get a light workout in for about 30 to 45 minutes, then uh, have a light breakfast. I, I usually just do something like a boiled egg and fruit. Uh, then we have what we call our 11 o'clock meeting, which would be comparable to the player's shoot-around. In that, we look to see do we have any emails that may tell us something about these two teams. Particularly, you would get something if, like, there was an altercation between some players in the game mm-hmm. or something bad happened in the game. Uh, we have weekly tests, so we'll take our tests online. 
and then we just start talking, preparing for that game. Who do we have tonight? What are their styles? Uh, what are the physical matchups that we need to be aware of? So that'll take about an hour as we prepare for the game. We talk about our rotation. We talk about our mechanics. Uh, just all of that. We touch base. We have point of emphasis tapes that go over plays that we got to get every night that happen in every game. And we just really focus on what we have that night. Then we go together, we have lunch, and we usually are talking more basketball. Then you have a window from about 1 to 3 where you probably lay down, get off your feet, rest, get up between 3 and 4, start getting ready for the game. We have to be at the game about an hour and a half before we get to the game. Then we start dealing with the matchups in the game, substitution patterns of the game, uh, and more detailed things. There's some things you have to do at the arena, like check the replay, uh, deflate gates, but we were checking balls before deflate gate in mm -hmm. football, so we managed the basketballs. And then we kind of shut our locker room down the last 30 minutes and really just hone in with our stretching, with uh, just focusing on what we have ahead of us. We do the game, come back from the game, unwind for a minute, then we review the game and watch the whole tape. Uh, and then as a crew chief, I submit a game report which gives details of what happened in the game so that Rod Thorne, I mean, not Rod Thorne, but so that uh, Adam Silver mm -hmm. and uh, all the other, Bob Delaney, Kiki Vandeway, and Mike Bannon will all have information on what happened the night before in the game if they did not see it. And then uh, I normally turn in at about 1.30, 2 in the morning, get up and fly to the next city. And, and here we go again. That's right. Do, do you work with the same crew every game? I do not. We At one time, we had four crews of 15 people, and you work within your crew. And over the last couple years, because our staff has so many new people because of retirees, you would, could go seasons without working with guys. So now we work with everyone on the staff, but we're, we're paired with in three categories, crew chief, referee, and umpire. So I work with all the referees and umpires, and the only time I work with other crew chiefs is normally in the playoffs. Uh, the replay center in Secaucus, mm -hmm. has that been beneficial for you? I think the replay center has been great because those plays that were quote-unquote controversial, we've eliminated a lot of them by using a replay for hit on the rim, balls out of bounds, two or threes. And, and that's what teams want. That's what fans want. And we want to be right. So I, I, I applaud the replay center. All right, final question, James. This has been great, and I know our fans appreciate your insight. Um, so a young man's listening to our podcast, or a young lady, mm -hmm. and they have a desire to, how do I get my foot in the door? One day I want to be James Capers. I want to be that guy, that woman who officiates, whether it's major college basketball, NBA, WNBA, the D-League, how do I go about getting that first break, that first foot in the door? What do I do? I would go to the lo local high school in their area, and I would go to the athletic director and find out what is the local referee association in their area. So in Chicago, they have uh, the COA and the MOA. You want to join those organizations because they put together the workshops, the seminars, the speakers, they teach the rules. They have a lot of the elementary school games, which will lead to the high school games. And that's where you will start all your training and development, which will allow you to start your path to refereeing and see what it can provide for you. And once you start doing high school basketball, 
then you, if you have a desire to do college basketball, you start hearing speakers and see people that come to these camps and clinics, and then you go to a college camp. So each conference has a camp in the summer, and you start refereeing in those venues, and their assignment people will observe you, and if they like you, then they bring you into those college conferences. If you want to go the NBA route, uh, they have what's called the grassroots program, and that's where you submit an application to the NBA, and they have a selection process, and they have three levels of grassroots uh, camps that lead to possible hiring in the development league, and that's your path to the NBA. But the first thing is to join your local high, local high school association because they have the lower-level games and teach you the craft. And, and uh, for the benefit of our listeners, when you're on the floor, what, what jersey number are you? Number 19. Number 19. Is that something you were able to pick, or did they just assign you 19? No, uh, I would have picked it because that was my father's number. So when I got in the league, my father it was one season between my father retiring and me getting So hired. you never got a chance to officiate? I never worked a game with him, but they gave me his number. And uh, that is, uh, for me, it's a tremendous blessing because – I always wanted to be my father, father and I and am. Number 19, there <laughs> exactly. you go. Exactly. Okay. But, but, by the way, and then I promise the last question, how many miles do you think you run during a game? They have, they have these metrics uh, that they've done that we run between three to five miles a game. Three to five miles a game. Yep. Wow. Well, you look great, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. I thank you. Lexus is a proud partner of the Chicago Bulls. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to see the extensive lineup of all-wheel drive vehicles. Don't let Mother Nature conquer you this winter.